Welcome to the first episode of Book Club, where we pick a book, we read it or listen to it, and discuss it with friends. This particular episode is based on a book called The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. If you haven't read that book yet, go ahead and snatch it up real quick. You won't be able to put it down. And we decided to have our friend Delvin Cox from the Delvin Cox Experience come on and discuss it with us. We thought he was the perfect guy to discuss this book. Um, We hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, welcome Mr. Delvin Cox. sit here in silence for a little while mm, that's weird <laughs> let's not do that <laughs> all right delvin so here's here's your random uh quote that i want you to finish okay all right just give me my cut of the money and nobody will get hurt <laughs> there we go hell yeah <laughs> spoken like a true motherfucker from miami right <laughs> Too much trick daddy music. <laughs> Hell yeah. So we decided to have you on because I come across, I got I got recommended a book by another podcast that I listen to called uh, uh, No Dumb Questions. They pick books, listen to them or read them, you know, whichever way you take in books. And then they do a show where they talk about you know, what they learned, it's that and a fucking third. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a cool book. I mean, I've listened to all the ones that they recommended. And this one, of all the books that they've recommended, I mean, this is the one that that hit. And I was like, shit, we need to talk to Delvin about this book because I wanted your perspective, not only because I know that, you know, obviously, you know, I shouldn't say obviously, people that don't know you from from us, uh, you know, you're a black guy, so your perspective is going to be different than, than us as, you know, white folks. But not only that, I know that, you know, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on a lot of different fronts. And I, and I think this book is a good one to kind of bring up a lot of different subjects. Yeah. So I think, I think we're all kind of in agreement that fucking Anthony Ray Hinton took a straight fucking. I mean, is anybody yeah. going to disagree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, no, I'm not going to disagree. But no. I, I do strongly agree Yeah. with that statement. I mean, it, it's the fucking, literally, it has to be the the epitome of a failed fucking justice system across the board. Yeah, I agree. Whether it happened to a black guy, white guy, brown guy, no matter who the fuck it happened to, but this shit right here is just a fucking abomination of justice. And it touched me because I've had a few run-ins with the law, nothing, you know, anywhere near as major as what, you know, Ray did, but... Jesus Christ, it it, it 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 really struck me when, what was that, the the TV show that we watched or the Netflix series, where uh, oh, uh, making a murderer. Yeah, making a murderer. Okay. Have you murderer. seen that one? Yes, I have. Okay. Where they got that young kid in the room and just went to harping on him about shit and got him to admit to stuff that he didn't really you know want to or that he really couldn't. Well, and not only was he a young kid. I mean, he was a juvenile, but he was also developmentally slow. Yeah. You know, and that was obvious. I don't think you need to have a, a test to, to know that. Um, but, yeah, that I'd say that was probably one of the turning points uh, for me that, you know, 
first of all, lawyer up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we literally set our kid down right after watching that series and like, hey, number one, if a fucking cop sits you down, don't answer a fucking thing till you talk to me. Yeah. You know, that was yeah. my that was the first real inclination that I had as a parent to want to sit my kid down and go, hey, if you ever get in fucking trouble with the law, shut the fuck up. Just shut the fuck up. And yeah, this, they're not your friends in that situation. They're antagonists. Exactly. They're not out for your best interest. And I think this story that we're talking about is a prime example of how a lot of people, a lot of black people in particular, feel the justice system always fails them. Yeah, okay. Because while you, this story may be new to you guys, me growing up seeing several cases where guys get caught up in the system and do something wrong, then it's the one time when they actually didn't do something wrong, mm. they really get in trouble. Right. And it's and the thing about it is that makes me kind of it's depressing is the fact that you don't have no you're powerless against it. Yeah. And exactly. I think it's not only a black or white thing in this situation. It's a a money thing because the thing that kept coming up was, well, if you had more money, we could we could we could really fix this case. We could really help you out if you had more money. We could really do this. We could do this, this, and that. And it's like, damn, if you're innocent. You, it's, it's almost like you're guilty till proven innocent, and you have to put up a fortune just to prove that you're innocent. It's crazy that it, the system is like that. I agree. I believe the system is set up, or, or at least it, it, it's set up in the right way. It's just executed wrong. Yes. I believe, like what you said, I believe that you know the rules and the laws and the rights and all that shit that we have in this country, I believe it is set up for innocent until proven guilty, but it's not executed that way hardly fucking ever. Mm-mm. Yes. You know, you end up having to prove your innocence. Your your defense has to be better than the prosecution, better than the prosecution having to be better than your defense. And that's just the opposite of the way it should be. Right. And if you're poor or and you don't even have to be poor, you know, in, in the general sense. But, you know, if you don't have money like uh, the top one percent or the Hollywood elite, you're probably not going to have a lawyer that has the ability to outshine the prosecution you know i mean oj he had all the money in the world right he barely got by and he barely got by yeah so can you imagine somebody with a public defender yeah like mr hinton you know um i i just i i think that's what was the most eye-opening to me was when the prosecution has all this money at their disposal for all of their cases to do all these tests or not do them yeah and then you've got a guy who, you know, I mean, they didn't have money. Yeah. They basically had access to no tests. Or the one guy that they could get, the... Um, ballistics expert. Yeah, the ballistics. Yeah, the, the one-eyed dumbass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's all they can afford is a one-eyed dumbass yeah. who's like 50 years back with his studies, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I think that's where the real injustice starts. And I think that's probably where the reform needs to start. So before we go any deeper into this, for those folks that are listening to this that haven't had the opportunity to read the book or, you know, in my case, listen to the book. I mean, all of my books come to me through audiobooks. Um, give them the two-minute elevator ride synopsis of, you know, just the rundown of the book. Okay, that's kind of hard, two minutes. Um, so basically what it is is uh, Anthony Ray Hinton, 
was uh, picked up and arrested for a crime that he did not commit, mm-hmm. a murder that he did not commit. Um, and I think the book was, the way he wrote the book was kind of amazing because it gives you all the backstory and kind of gives you a glimpse into to his life leading up to this point. And then um, he does a very good job of, basically, you kind of start to feel like you're living in the cell with him um, as he goes through his his uh, incarceration on death row um, and the appeals process and and things to that effect to that effect and eventually he is um, released from prison because they finally were able to uh, get the right appeal in front of the right judges and um, he was declared innocent and released and of course the the prosecution for the state decided not to try him again so that was less than two minutes but that's the overall gist of the book right he was framed well he wasn't even framed man it's a whole nother term it's a a miscarriage of justice they basically wanted to find a black guy to put in jail because they said oh this one will do basically yeah Yeah. even to the point didn't wasn't didn't his uh defense attorney basically tell him like hey man you know it, it doesn't really matter you know, even if you didn't do it, somebody that looks just like you did, so you're going to take one for the team. Yeah, essentially that's what happened. And when, that's when, essentially what they told him. Yeah. I mean, it, when, when that's the beginnings of your relationship with the guy that's supposed to be fighting for your life, you, you should know right then you are Fluxville. Yeah. And there's no coming back from that. The guy that was his, that was assigned to him as, as his, you know, uh, as his attorney just, he was as much a part of the problem as was the judge and the prosecutor and... Uh, his fucking buddy, you know. Yeah, well, he got paid a thousand dollars to defend that case, you know. And mind you, okay, this was back in nineteen eighty-five, so mm-hmm. just it's relative, but still a thousand dollars when your defense attorney <laughs> looks at you and says, "I eat a thousand dollars for breakfast." Yeah, I mean th- that's got to be demoralizing. And, and I think that's probably the other thing that I liked so much about the book was that through every single demoralizing thing that I, I could, I mean, I just think about myself in that situation. I probably would have just lost it, right? Yeah. He found a way to not. He yeah. found a way to persevere and, and come through that. And that, that to me was kind of the amazing part of the story was just his. Well, and that kind of leads to the question that I was going to ask both y'all. I mean, what was the... You know, after going through the book and having time to reflect and all that kind of shit, what was the number one takeaway you had from the book? Like, what was the one thing you walked away either feeling different about or solidifying? You know, as far as just just the book in general, not anything in particular, but I mean, what was your what was your one takeaway? I'll let Delvin answer first. Go ahead. Definitely the death penalty, because I don't know a lot of people know this about me. I kind of a strong believer in the death penalty. I never had a problem with it. I'm a little bit surprised by that, actually. Yeah, I was like, if you get caught and you do something wrong, as long as you're guilty, I never had a problem with them putting a person to death. Like, you, if you're a serial killer and you kill a bunch of fucking people, you deserve death. Yeah. But this kind of opened my eyes and like, hold up now. How many people on death row who are basically waiting to die and possibly didn't do it or have mental issues. And it mm-hmm. kind of opened your eyes to a whole different side that you don't really even think about. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, I, 
Well, a little history. I mean, you know I like true crime. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm a big fan, Delvin. (laughs) I will sit and watch (laughs) every episode of Forensic Files over and over and over again. I don't even care. Um, And the majority of my podcasts up until recently have been true crime podcasts. Um, And I think it probably started with Serial. I mean, I think most people know about Serial now with the case of Adnan Syed. I know that one very well. Yeah, okay. So I think my fascination with the wrongfully convicted started probably about then. And I ended up with like uh, five or six different podcasts that basically focused on nothing but the wrongfully convicted. Um, So I, I wasn't... I don't think I took much away in that regard um, from this book. I wasn't like, holy crap, you know, people are convicted all the time um, when they shouldn't have been, you know, or they didn't do it or whatever. I think what I took away from it more or less was the relationships um, that he had in, in his life, right? You know, he's got his mom and she's clearly... Uh, raised him the way I think most people want to raise their kids. Yeah, I agree. Right? I mean, I would love for my child to to have no issue coming to me and saying, hey, Mom, I stole this car. <laughs> right? Um, but just the relationships in general, seeing how, you know, he had a, a supportive friend who showed up every visiting day for 30 years yeah. You know, and I sat back in my, and you know, trying to think through my life and was like, do I have that friend? Do I have that family member? Right. Right. So I think really what I took away from it was just his, his perspective. I enjoyed listening to his perspective on life, how he persevered and stayed positive. I mean, obviously there were, there were times where he wasn't, you know, where he felt bad and it was like, oh man, this just, it keeps going on. You know, but overall, he stayed positive. Um, And just, I really enjoyed the relationships, the way he portrayed the relationships. Um, And I just pray that I've got people in my life that would be there for me, just the way his mom and his friend and his friend's mom were there for him. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I got scared there for a minute when, you know, he, he started talking about, you know, Lester. <clears throat> that was his friend's name, right? Yes. Was his yeah, that's right. That's it was his friend. Had met somebody. Oh, yeah. And it turned out when he said that the lady that he met was the same name as the girl that that uh, Anthony Anthony Ray was, was you know, in, not engaged or but like, was, like, serious with, right? When, right about the time he started to, when he got arrested. Yeah. I was sitting here going, oh, shit, this is going to ruin that friendship. Because, <laughs> I mean, for a split second, I'm like, oh, shit, you know, you know, Mr. Hinton went to jail and this girl just stepped over to Lester and Lester fell in love and was going to have a hard time telling his boy that, Hey, I know you got locked up, but a girl come over here one night and shit got weird. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it, you know, it, it just, it was one of those things. I mean, they just had the same name, wasn't the same girl, but there at that moment, I was like, man, this dude right here is just now. Cause I think it's right about the time in the story where he was deciding to actually speak a little bit. Cause you know, he, he like went mute when he, when he ended up on death row, he didn't talk to fucking nobody. Yeah, he except Lester and his mom and and Lester's mom. Yeah, he wouldn't <clears> talk to guards. He wouldn't talk to other inmates. Yeah, but yeah. he just kind of started coming out of that out of that shell, and 
then that part of the story came up, and I'm like, oh, man, they're going to wreck this dude again. He's fixing to go through something else that most people just couldn't fucking handle. You yeah, know? Speaking, speaking of that, Delvin, what did you think about his um, relationship with the guy on death row that um, was raised as a white supremacist or a KKK uh, guy? That's probably the only time in the book I actually cried. When he died, it hit me hard. Cause I was like, wow. Because it was such a genuine relationship. Yeah. Right. With somebody you just sitting there talking to. You don't know what they look like. You don't know their history. Then when you find out, instead of kind of pushing them away, you're like, you know what? Doesn't matter. You're my boy. We're rocking together. What you did in the past with the past, it was so many powerful moments in that relationship. Like even the part when he, the guy's telling, like, hey, dad, this is my best friend. Yeah. Yeah. It was just such a powerful, touching moment. It's like, it shows you how, no matter how big of a piece of shit you think a person could be, there is a path to redemption for that person. And it's, yeah. it's just really powerful. Yeah. yeah. And that speaks to my number one takeaway from the book was what I, when I got through listening to it, you know, I, I, I do a lot of driving for my job. So I got, I can, I can just sit and turn the radio off and for hours on end, just do nothing but think and not have to be distracted by anything other than what's going on on the highway. But I was thinking about, it and I was like, this book is not about injustice. It's not about, you know, racial issues. It's not about, um, you know, the life and times of a man on death row. This book is a hundred percent about forgiveness Yes. and going from the, going backwards from it. That's what it was. And the, the true power of what like legit act. I mean, people say all the time, well, yeah, I forgive you, but you really don't, you know what I mean? You just say it so you can move on. But I think if you actually truly forgive somebody for a transgression that they, you know, enacted upon you, you're not giving them anything. You know what I mean? You're giving yourself something because you can waste a lot of fucking energy holding grudges and, and all that kind of shit. And it, that's kind of where it started in the book for me when he decided to embrace that relationship. Cause he could have easily, you know, with, with the, the story that he, he puts it, you know, about him and Lester coming home from, you know, baseball practice or whatever, and having to jump off in ditches because white dudes that were white supremacists would, would have literally fucking murdered them in the middle of the street. Yeah, to, yeah to with have, the car coming down the road when yeah okay yeah, to have the base that he has with his relationship with white folks that that figure themselves to be superior just because of their skin color and to go into that relationship in prison I think was the first step of on his way of moving his own life forward he 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 learned that he had to start fucking forgiving people because if he didn't he was going to do nothing but live inside that shell of hate from now the fuck on and he didn't want even part of that. And I think there was something he's, well, I know there was something that, that Delvin hit on that I was going to bring up was the, um, you know, your, your worst offense doesn't define who you are. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'd never really thought about that because I, you know, I am kind of judgmental. Um, and I think some of it's just a, like a protection mechanism for myself. Right. Yeah. So somebody who crosses me in one way or another I'm usually done with them right they don't get very many chances but he made that statement about you know and I can't quote him directly but it was something to the effect of you know your your worst offense does not define who you are yeah I mean he basically said something of some of the effect of you can't really judge a person off of the 
the three minutes or two minutes in their life where they've done their most heinous thing. Yeah. It, it doesn't define them. So that that was a good takeaway that, you know, just having that uh, retrospective thought within myself about not being quite so quick to cut somebody off just because they've done one thing. Right. You know, or two things. So um, how did you feel about his uh, past? You know, did did you have any moment where when he's talking about being convicted of this crime where you're like, well, but yeah, wait, because you did steal a car and you did write some, some hot, hot checks. So did you have any any point in in that telling of the crime? Did you think, wait a minute, maybe you could have been guilty? No. no? I felt like I looked at the situation like <clears throat> nobody is perfect. <laughs> like we all do things, we all make mistakes and things like that. But it with his story, a lot of the things did at least with that part of it. The, the murder part. A lot of the things didn't add up, and to, to, to before we got to that point, he kind of always fessed up to what he did wrong. Yeah. And I think that that says a lot because a lot of people. This, for, for one thing, this is his book. He can write whatever he want to write. Sure. Yeah. He could easily just wrote that never happened. I didn't do any of these things. What what not what so? But he's like, hey, no, I did this. Yeah. This is my past. This was a mistake, you know. My mom told me, hey, you need to fix this problem. I went and, like a man and fessed up to it and solved it. You know, it takes a lot to admit when a person's wrong. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I think we all can learn from that in general. Like, can you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's, you know, it's what we try to teach our kid all the time. And, you know, when he was younger, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, when they, when they really start getting into that, trying to cover up, you know, the the things that they've done wrong when when you know you got them you know and it's one of the things we try to teach him early on is like hey dude just just tell the truth because here's the thing telling the truth does not guarantee you won't get in trouble but what it will do is guarantee you that you will get in less trouble because if you lie and you try to cover up and you try to throw somebody else under the bus or, or whatever the case may be all of those things you're going to gain punishment for as well, right? It's not just the thing that you did. It's the thing that you did plus. And that's what irritated me about this book was the ones that I felt like should have gotten punished is the prosecutor and the defense attorney mm. and the judge and, you know, to a certain extent, some of the jury. You know, well. it's like these dudes are – they did more evil shit to get him convicted then if the crime that he did commit, to me, they're almost equal, right? Well, we can get right into that right now because um, that's what black people feel all the time. Like we, when we see situations happen where we see a misjustice and then everybody gets off of the misjustice, we're like, what the hell? It, it, it's baffling because we feel like, damn, you really don't care about us. Now, we know obviously it's not the case for all white people. Yeah. yeah. When we see miscarriages of justice where You'll see somebody gunned down the streets. It is blatant. It's on video and things like that. And then they're like, okay, all charges are dropped. Nothing really happened here. It feels like we're worthless. And I think this is the perfect example of how um, how much of a miscarriage of justice it was and how they didn't care. But even, even until the end, 
they really didn't care. They just realized at a point where like, we kind of kind of let them go because they didn't really apologize. They just like, right, you gotta go. You can go. You're free. Well, that's the whole thing, man. Is it, it, it? There was never anything from from that side. They fought it tooth and nail all the way just because they didn't want to have to admit that they fucked up. Yes. And to me, that's an issue. It's like if anybody should be held accountable, it should be those who are elected into power. Yeah, well, and not only did he not get an apology, he's never been compensated for the 30 years of his life that he spent behind bars. You know, and that's that's another thing that comes from uh, some of my other podcasts that I listened to, and I was just curious if he had. And no, he has never received any um, compensation for, you know, being wrongfully convicted. In fact, I think there's like 15 states that don't compensate wrongfully convicted people. Um, just period. Yeah, no, they're just like, whoops, my bad. Right. You know, here's your, you know, 30-year-old clothes that you came into jail with. Bye. Yeah. And to me, that's um, that's that's tragic. No doubt. I mean, you, you take that many, I mean, take one day away from somebody wrongfully. I mean, how do you compensate for that? You know what I mean? I mean, there's a formula, but... And it's different for all the states that do compensate. Like Texas happens to compensate. I think Florida does also. Um, you know, so there's a formula. I mean, we're all worth something. Yeah. Right? A number. But to give up that much of your life and not, not even get a... A fucking I'm sorry? sorry? Yeah. Just yeah. look at it this way. And this is what really messed me up about this whole situation. Average lifespan for a black man is like 65, 70 years old. Yeah. You spent 30 years in prison when you're 20 years old. You've basically lost most of your life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, more than half of your life's gone. Well, and not <laughs> only that, but think about it this way. What all changed from 85 to when he got out 30 years later? Everything. Yeah, everything. Everything. He And it, one of the, it kind of, I was like, yeah, he paid. Um there towards the end of the book when um, he'd gotten out and Lester and Lester's wife, who I can't think of her name at the moment, but took him out to eat and Lester paid with the debit card or yeah. whatever. And he was like, well, wait, <laughs> we haven't paid. You know, I that clicked with me. I mean, even that had changed to a point where, you know, he was so institutionalized mm -hmm. that he, he didn't even think that a card could pay for a meal. Right. You know, things that are second nature to you and me was like, whoa, I'm not going back to jail well, for this that meal. that moment spoke greater volumes just outside of, you know, him being behind the times. It was a legit, he was still fearful that even though he had been released, he was like, this shit, this shit ain't real. Yeah. They're watching. They're just waiting for a fucking reason. And he, he probably wasn't wrong. Right. You know. And then turn right around and that evening or whatever ended up sleeping in the bathroom because the bedroom was way too fucking big. That was the one that got me. I was like, motherfucker, I got to turn this off for a second because you're going to give me my goddamn feelings. Yeah, it's a lot of moments in the book that's just like that where it's like, holy crap. Man. He does a great fucking job of laying out the, the story in a way that's not only chronological, but like when he's when he's reading the court transcripts and – when he's telling you what happened in the courtroom, I mean, you you feel like you're in there, like you're sitting right next side of him the whole book, whether he's in the courtroom or being transported to the courtroom or when he's in his cell. I mean, he he writes it so well that it's really fucking difficult to just stop listening. It's yeah. one of the books that 
you know, I've, I've listened to quite a few and read quite a few where there's some that are, you know, they're page turners and all that kind of shit. But this one, I just literally would just find reasons to slow the fuck down on my driving. So it would take me a little bit longer to get to where I was going so I could listen to the next chapter. He does a great job of keeping you engaged. You know, the story itself does that, but the way he presents it is, is some next level shit. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's a, it's a great story, but it's, it, at points, it's a tough listen because it's points where he starts to unravel and lose hope, and it's yeah. like, man. And it really hurts more when you know the person is innocent. Yeah. Well, when they start murking everybody that's around him, because there for a while they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't they killing anybody. They, they just had like a long hiatus of not killing people for like several years. Yeah. And then they just did him like back to back to back. So he started seeing his friends, the people he knew, die. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's and fucking wild. Them. That's yeah. the crazy thing about it. Smell the smell. Mm. Yeah. And him talking about in in eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight, and all that kind of shit them not having any ventilation and air conditioning. Can you imagine sitting in a prison in Alabama in the summertime Ooh. just fucking cooking? Yeah. Jesus Christ. I don't cooking know how. Smelling death. Yeah. Yeah. The whole time. Every, every, you're, seems you're, like every night at midnight, somebody else is, you know, being hauled off. Yeah. Your friend, somebody that you had, uh, become acquaintances with, you know, through the bars or whatever. Yeah. Um, I thought it was awesome when they started their book club. Well, and that was going to be one of my questions for you guys was, you know, if, if you were, if you found yourself in his shoes, what would be three books that you would want to have in your little book club? Oh, Jesus. I think I'd probably be just like him. I don't give a shit. Send me something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just it's, it's anything. I, I don't, it's like, it's. Fucking it's Moby so Dick. Weird. I want something that's like four and a half inches thick. <laughs> Give me the biggest fucking book you got. Uh, I don't know, man. That's hard to say because, I mean, it, it really is difficult to put yourself in that position because, you know, it, it's, that's a headspace of knowing that, I mean, I guess you know if you're under, like if you're working on an appeal, you don't have to go to bed that night worrying about whether or not they're going to come get you. You know what I mean? Because you know they can't execute you while you have a, an active appeal. Right. But once your appeals are done, you know what I mean? I mean you're time. literally just sitting around each and every fucking day could be the day, you know. And to just, whatever you can do to escape that, I don't know that I could pinpoint that down to three specific items. Okay, but, well, don't make it three. Just make it whatever. What's the one book? The absolute one book. Obviously, you can have the rest of the books in the world. But what's the absolute one book that you would want, not just to be able to read, but to share with your cell buddies that you have made? This one. This one? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this one probably would be a good one for that because of the story of hope. Yeah. You know, and I guess I, I wonder, you know, because you learn, I mean, obviously the man wrote the book, so they didn't kill him, right? Yeah. Yes, obviously. So if, but if this was like a movie, if this was a movie, I think it'd be way more suspenseful because, you know, if it was like, you know, if it was non or if it was, if it was fiction, right? Because you wouldn't know the ending with this one, you're going into it and you know, the ending, you know, the guy gets off and, or not gets off, but you know, gets out 
and lives the rest of his life outside of the prison. So you know the end game here is not him dying, right? And I think the way he corrects that is with the relationships he built while he was there. He kept that suspense running through the book by, well, Harry went, and then Michael, and then James, and then Richard, and then William. You know, he named off, he went, he went on that thing where he named off all the guys that had been, that he, and he kept going and kept going. I'm like, dude, Jesus Christ, how many motherfuckers is there? Because after about six or eight names, I'm like, okay, that's pretty powerful that you can remember six names in a row. And then he just kept going and kept mm-hmm. going. And, kept, and he really brought gravity to that situation. And I like the fact that he didn't rush that. He didn't shorten it by a single fucking name. He paced it in a way that, that really sunk into you. Just by him reading dude's first names, you really felt the gravity of, fuck me, man. There's that many dudes that got walked down the hall and didn't come back. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But it did, it did. So you said your number one takeaway was the death penalty. That may have changed your your mind. May have changed based on on the book. Yes. Okay. Yeah. In what way do you still believe? Because I've heard a quote that says you can believe in the death penalty and also believe that it should never be used. Is that kind of where you land, or do you? I think that's where I land with it now. Okay. Because I think I'm in the same place. It's it's really hard. This is like I said. This book is a powerful instrument in terms of telling you why the death penalty kind of needs to be second looked at in terms of how. Because I've always been the type of person: if one innocent man dies or goes to prison for the rest of their life, our system is failing. Yes, correct. I don't think anybody who's innocent should ever have the opportunity to be locked up. Right. Yeah, it's it, so, it's too much. I mean, we had a conversation with was it just Aaron and shit. I don't know. Maybe it was on your podcast when we, when we were on with you. It was, you know, one's too many, right? And you hear that a lot. And my thing is, is somebody said, "Well, what if you've got you know eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness, and it's on video, and it's this, that, and the fucking third, right? Where it's just undeniable that you took somebody else's life." My thing is, is if it's wrong for that person to take somebody else's life, then it has to be wrong for a group of people to take somebody's life. Yes. Right? So it's still what you're saying is is that life is so precious that anybody that threatens it or takes it away has to be dealt with. And I agree with that. You just can't let, you know, crazy fucking maniacs run around, you know. <clears throat> but you also have to land on, in my opinion, in my opinion, you have to land on the other side of it going, life is precious. You can't, nobody has the right to take somebody else's life. Period. Not a government, yes. not a judge, not a random guy at fucking Walmart or, you know, whatever. I mean, it just, you, you shouldn't be taking people's lives, period. Now, does that mean that you have to accept that, certain people are going to be a nightmare for society and let them roam free. Fuck no. You know what I mean? I'm okay with locking them up from now until the, till the day they die of natural fucking causes. I'm yes. willing to take on that as a citizen to pay whatever it costs for that security. But I don't know that I can stand morally and go, yeah, let's murder them back. Yeah. Especially with, in some cases, death is what they want. Yeah. Hmm. Like a lot of these shooters, not to get on that topic, but a lot of these shooters want to die. 
Yeah. They don't they don't they don't go in saying, hey, I'm gonna leave out alive. I'm going in. They go in fully well knowing that what I'm doing is probably gonna get me killed. Yeah. And that's you know, I think you in certain cases I think you have to have deadly force for law enforcement. Yes. I, I don't do. think that, you know, particularly in this country, I don't think it's possible to have a police force that doesn't have the option for deadly force. I agree with that completely. I do believe, though, that you should attempt non-deadly force until you are until those options are exhausted, right? Yeah, I, I truly believe that. So wait, you're you mean like taser before handgun? Yeah. Okay. Taser, beanbags, rubber bullets. Right. You know the the, the object non-lethal. They have many non-lethal tools, and that's why I always wonder why we don't see those implemented more. Right. And I, I think really and truly you probably have over the last, probably the last 20 years, I think you're seeing that more and more. If for no other reason, fucking departments are just tired of getting their asses handed to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, it, and if that's the, the, the reason, that's kind of a, a, a fucked ass reason for that to be, but the, the end result is less people are dying at the hands of fucking cops, right? So I'm for that. But I still think you've got because I mean I guess the end goal is, is if there's somebody that's like you know like one of these shooters that's in there you know just indiscriminately killing people the 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 ultimate goal is to make them stop doing that right yes. the ultimate goal should not necessarily be to kill more which is him right the goal should be to stop him killing other people And if you can do that in a non-lethal way, I feel like that should be your your first attempt. If that is completely not an option, then do whatever you got to do to cop to to stop the dude from fucking just continuing to kill people. Yes, you know. But in the but in these type cases where the act has already happened, the arrest has been made, and then you're in the criminal justice system, I don't think the end goal of the criminal justice system should be murder. Well, and something that, I mean, you've said this before, and if people will listen to the Delvin Cox experience, they'll hear it. <laughs> um, you know, people are flawed, right? Humans in general are flawed. Right. We all make mistakes, okay? So, I think I'm kind of on the fence with the death penalty. Um, I, I have a feeling that it's still necessary um, and I do believe that there are still some cases that I'd have no problem with the guy being murdered by the, by the government. Okay. Um, just because I don't have a name at the moment other than Ted Bundy. You Jeffrey know, Ted, Dahmer. Right. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, yeah. Those type people, in my opinion, I don't think they should spend the rest of their life on my dime. Okay. But I don't, because I know... That police are flawed, right? They're human. Prosecutors are flawed. Judges are flawed. And the one thing that, out of watching or listening to all these uh, wrongful conviction things, the one thing that has blown my mind is juries. Yeah. More often than not are flawed. I mean, you have to think. I understand that the Constitution provides a jury of your peers. I don't want a jury of my peers. I want a jury of geniuses. Right. Okay? Because the 
ballistics expert, the DNA expert. Yeah. I couldn't tell you if they're being truthful or giving me the correct information. I can't decipher that. Yeah. So I don't want another me sitting on my jury deciphering that and deciding whether or not I'm innocent or guilty. So I think when you have the serial killers that are out there and all the evidence is clear and they've confessed and okay, put them to death. But Joe Blow gets arrested and convicted for murdering his uncle. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't, I don't know that I'm ready to say that. Yeah, he should be put to death. See, I think the, you know, the going on the point that people are flawed. People have issues with once they obtain power, how they either number one, keep it. And number two, how they use it. I think if the death penalty is on the table, there's going to be misjustices carried out in its name. So I'm willing, like I said, as a as a citizen to pay the price of the rarities of the serial killers, of the Dahmers, of the Gacy's, and you know these guys, the mass shooters. Right. I'm willing to you know these, you know, in all in all reality, the the outliers. Right. I'm willing to pay to have them sit on life in prison for however many years that takes for them to die of natural causes to leave open the door of the 90% of the other people who may or may not actually need to fucking be there. You see what I'm saying? Because I think if if the death penalty is on the table, it's going to get used and it's probably at some point going to get used in a way that's wrong. Like in, like in this case, in this book, so if there's even a chance that there's, you know, one or two or 10 or a hundred people that could be sitting on death row waiting for their day to walk down the hall that may or may, that, that, that truly aren't guilty, that, that's a price that I'm, as a citizen, I'm willing to pay to put up the, the true evil motherfuckers in our society. I'm willing to pay for them to have three hots in a cot for 25 years so that you leave the door open for the other guys or ladies that need the opportunity to be able to get the fuck off. No, fuck them bitches that kill them kids. Kill their own kids. Uh Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Well, it's like you just said. I mean, can you really judge a person? Let's say a woman is just stressed the fuck out at work. Her old man just fucking walked out. You know, you you can just stack shit on stack shit on stack shit, right? Mm -mm. And this bitch just loses her fucking mind and turns and knocks her fucking kid out because he's running his fucking mouth, right? Slap shit out of him and kills him <laughs> okay. behind it. Well, that bitch is going to go up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. People can fucking snap and have, you know, legit mental breaks that last for days. And they're really not that person. They just, you know, had a fucking moment. Again, I sympathize with you. Yes, me, as a, and I think we talked about this with Brian, me as a person, I want true vengeance, right? And that's what it is. When you see those things, when you see a serial rapist or a, a serial pedophile or a you know a serial killer or, or, or whatever, right, or a mother or a father that takes their own kids' lives, that that you want to go after them and take their life back, or you know, you take their life too, however you want to look at it, I believe that's a vengeance-driven emotional reaction to that, and I don't think our justice system should have that in it in to limit it as much as possible because I think people will want vengeance rather than justice. 
and what our justice system is supposed to be about is gaining justice and I don't know if killing people back is justice. Hey, what's that say about Anthony Ray Hinton's uh, character? That not once did he talk about vengeance in the book. Yeah. You know, he hadn't, as far as I know, he hasn't tried to sue the state of Alabama to get, you know, any kind of compensation for being locked up. I think that dude wants to stay as far away from a court building as he possibly (laughs) fucking can. I wouldn't blame him. Hell no. If I was him, I'd be the same way. I'd be like, I, I don't even want to act like I want to go talk to a fucking lawyer. You know, unless somebody just arrested me and then I'm shutting my motherfucking mouth and mortgaging everything I got to fight it. So I, I don't blame that dude for not going after him. I mean, maybe it'd be the right thing. You know, I think he would probably win that civil suit, you know, if he, if he decided to sue the state of Alabama. But again, that goes back to what I think my number one takeaway was that he truly forgave all those people. He hopes that one day they get held to a higher court than what is physically on the earth. You know, in his opinion, those people are going to get judged when they die. You know, their their ultimate judgment's coming then. So that's that's what I'm talking about, the power of true forgiveness, of actually forgiving somebody so that you're, you yourself can move the fuck on. You can let that shit go. If it lands on them and they keep holding on to it, then that's their fucking problem. But as a, as a person, you got to learn how to give that forgiveness out so that you yourself can move on in a positive fucking way. Yeah, I think that's a real powerful thing. It's just the power of forgiveness. It's so powerful. And when, once you have the ability to forgive somebody for doing you wrong, you take everything off your hands, off your table. Right. Once you forgive them, it's, it's that, That's the whole thing. You're, you're taking the yoke off of you. You're not, you're not taking the yoke off of them, and you're not necessarily putting the yoke on them. All you're doing is taking yours off. Yes. You know, you're letting that shit go so that your life is is exponentially fucking easier because you really can. You can get caught up in a in a trap of just hating a motherfucker, you know, and letting that carry on and on and on and on to the point to where it has it starts affecting parts of your life that have nothing to do with that situation. And I think that's what he was trying to kind of say was is I could hate these people and just you know, continue to every white person that I interact with, just assume they're the fucking same. But that was his big thing was he had to let it go so that other parts of his life can flourish. Yes. So where do you think he got that mentality from? Do you think it came from his mom, his raising, you know, the way she raised him? Or do you think it came from his faith or a combination of both? Both. Both. I think it came from his mom because she put him down the path of faith and a lot of black mothers are kind of like that but they'll, they'll tell you every Sunday you gotta be in church <laughs> 8 a.m. If you're getting up they're getting the belt to get you up oh lord right <laughs> you know that's that um that southern charm in terms of like how cause I remember growing up, growing up and it was mandatory that you go to church on Sundays and Sometimes church would be four or five hours. Like, geez, how much God could you get into you in one day? But that's how it was back then. And and I think it it builds character. Now that I'm like, now that I'm older, I say, okay, it makes a little sense. Now, I don't think I'd be sitting in church for four hours now, but I I appreciate the times of going there and helping build character, making me a better person to understand the importance of kind of having that little bit of spirituality into you. Yeah, I think there's 
you know, you can you can think what you want about Christianity. I mean, I grew up in the church. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher, you know, up until the day he died, really. I mean, I guess you'll never stop being one of those. Mm-hmm. But Well. Uh, yeah, I guess you could. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, you know, we grew up in church. I mean, my mom and aunts and uncles, I mean, everybody went to church on Sunday. We went to church twice on Sunday. We went to Sunday school early in the morning, then we had regular service, and then we went home for dinner or lunch and then came back for evening service, and then we were in church on every Wednesday. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in church as a little kid, and I got away from it. I don't I don't really do the whole Christianity thing before, but there is, if you really break down Christianity, if you don't really get into the weirdness of it and all the different, you know, understandings and readings and, you know, the, the proclivities of each individual denomination and all that kind of shit where everybody does different things, the underlying teachings of Christ are just about being a good person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now he, he still has the, the thing of, um, uh, you know, you've got to accept me as the son of God and you have to accept me as your Lord and savior or else you're going to spend eternity in hell, which to me is a little weird, but the, the teachings that he had was basically like, you know, just fucking be good to people. You know, don't be a fucking asshole all the time. You know, if somebody, if you have more than somebody else and they are in true need, help a brother out. You know, the, the, those, those tenets of the, of the Christian faith, and I believe those are in the majority of all faiths. I mean, you, you know, most extremes are, are still kind of the same thing. They just try to teach you to be a good person, you know, and take care of your brother and your neighbor and all that kind of shit. But I think to answer your question, I think, I think his mom had a lot to do with it, but I really believe that Lester was one of the most pivotal, pivotal, say the word, pivotal, pivotal. There we go. <laughs> Words are hard. One of the most pivotal characters in his life because of what you said early on. That dude never stopped coming. You know what I mean? That's never thirty years. That's fifty-two weeks a year for thirty years, never missing. Fuck my weekends for thirty years. I'm gonna go see my boy. And spend an hour with him, whatever the time it is. You know what I mean? You got to think about the sacrifices that dude gave up in his personal life of every single yeah. fucking weekend. You know what I mean? Hey, you want to come out to this barbecue? No, I got to go see Ray. Well, you know and, what I mean? And then his wife yeah. also, who, you know, I mean, I don't know if it was ever stated for certain, but I don't know that she knew Ray from, or Anthony <laughs> I'm going by his middle name now. I think that's what he kind of goes by mostly. <laughs> right. Um, we know him. It's cool. Right. We're, we're <laughs> personal friends. So yeah. um, <laughs> um, I don't know that she had known him prior to the whole Lester experience, you know, getting I would involved imagine with she him. had a little bit knew about him. Maybe they weren't friends or whatever, but I mean, yeah. they all kind of came from that small little community. So, But what's that say about her, that she was willing to go Strong. right? you know, with, with her husband, you know, to seem now, of course, something happened and, and, you know, this to me is also tragic, um, you know, to where she ended up taking a break from going and visiting with Lester, um, you know, but that says a lot about her too, to be willing to not only give up her time, but to say, this is your guy. Yeah. Yes. I'm all about you going and, and seeing him once a week for 30 years or, you know, whatever yeah. it actually was. Um, that's somebody that said to their husband, I'm going to, I'm going to go all in. Yeah. I'm in yeah. all the way in. So that, that was kind of a neat little aspect that we got to see. Yeah. I think that 
his ability to forgive and and move on all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of that comes from the consistency that he had there. You know, of course his mom got sick and she couldn't come and you know all that kind of shit, but that that consistency of that of just having that one person that you don't have to question it. You know what I mean? They're going to fucking be there. I think that I think if Lester hadn't have done what Lester did, I don't think that Ray would have made it to the end. I think he'd have quit fighting yeah. and just gave up completely and just accepted his fucking fate of, you know what? I got fucked. I'm going to die for it. So let's just do the damn thing. But that, that consistency of him just steadily fucking always being, being there for him is what I think was the one tie that he had to that line of hope. Yeah, particularly, particularly once his uh, his mom got sick yeah. and couldn't come. I think that helped him through that. Um, I was just, I was really impressed with the relationships, you know, and I, being honest, I don't know that I have a friend in my life that would be that way. And I don't know if that's just because 2019 relationships are what they are. Or if I just don't have that kind of person in my life. I think part of it is the fact that yes, I don't I don't think two thousand nineteen relationships are what they were in eighty five because you know, in eighty five and even before that, you know, that's when he was arrested, right? So yeah. he was he was what, like nineteen or twenty or something like that when he was twenty two, something like You're that. He's a young me man. To recall details that are way too minute. So he had twenty years of friendship <laughs> with this guy before any of this shit happened, right? And when you listen to that and I think that's why he tells the stories of them, of him being truly concerned that when he graduated that Lester had to walk home alone. Like, he was scared every fucking day that Lester wasn't going to make it back. You know, they, they, he tells all those stories so that you have that solidified base of these guys were really fucking close before any of this other shit happened. And Lester could have easily just wrote him the fuck off. You know, hey, man, I believe that you're fucking innocent, but I got to live my best life over here. Yeah. He could have easily done that. And... That's the other thing is is I don't think you have a friend today that was your friend 35 years ago. Well, that's true. You know what I mean? Yeah. So most folks nowadays, I mean, with, you know, you got to find work where you can find work, blah, blah, blah. Most people don't carry those long fucking friendships, you know, or as close. I mean, with the, with the Facebook and, you know, Twitter and everything else, you can kind of keep in touch, right? But most folks don't, you know, live next door to the guy that they've been that they grew up next door to, you know that that kind of shit just really doesn't happen that often anymore. People go on and live their own lives, and you don't carry these twenty, thirty, forty fucking year friendships. Yeah, I think, but that that that's goes on the character of both of them because just think about how how hard it is to have a friend in prison and stand by their side. Giving up, it's almost like you're in prison because you have to sacrifice your weekends to go see them and, and be in that environment for X amount of hours per week or per month for years. Yeah. It has, well, to, be, it has to be depressing just walking in there. Well, I mean, think about just all the shit that he had to eat, you know, yeah. Sunday through Friday of, you know, sticking, you know, being one of the only people that stuck by his side. I'm sure everybody in his community is like, yeah, fuck that dude. I mean, especially the boy that, the, the guy that, you know, fucking, you know, lied on him. Yeah, part of the problem. You know, because yeah. he fucked his girl or whatever. You know, so I'm sure 
Lester's life, home life was, you know, he probably loved his wife and he went to work and all that kind of shit. But I bet you he got fucking hammered week to week to week to week about why are you still hanging around this motherfucker? Yeah. You know, he's done. They obviously got him, you know. So just to have that willpower to, to fight that shit day in, fucking day out, to have a friend like that is fucking invaluable. <laughs> yeah. Man. I do like, well, I mean, we've kind of hit on all of them. That's what I was just looking at. I was going through my little list of questions, and I think we've hit just about every one of them in one way, shape, or form. I mean, I was going to play the Desert Island game, and that was the whole what books would you take or what books would you, in this case, what books would you suggest be added to the reading list? But, yeah. We can try that. Well, go for it. Autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. Very similar story in terms of how you had somebody who wasn't necessary because a lot of people don't know this. Malcolm X wasn't always this militant person that people know him as today. All right. He was a hustler. He was a pimp. Okay. And he kind of like found the nation of Islam and grew into the character he was. And even after he got to that so militant side, he kind of did a trip to the promised land and came back kind of a renewed man because he was so militant on one side, came back with a whole different perspective on life, and that's when they guilt him. Mm. Fascinating story. Is that a is that a straight up book that's written by like what him or his family or what? It's written by Marcus Garvey. But it is, I think it's, it was written by him too, as well. I ain't opposed to listening to that. What is it? The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. Very is, interesting book. Would you want a Bible? I also have a movie too, with Denzel Washington. So if you haven't seen that, you can probably watch that too. Okay. I like Denzel Washington. Very good movie. How do you not like Denzel Washington? I mean, find me a motherfucker that don't like him, and I'll find you an idiot. <laughs> Okay, Alex Haley. Yes, and Alex Malcolm Haley wrote Roots, by the way. Oh, God. No shit. <sighs> Let me tell you, I could get off into some shit. You want to talk about crying and having some Kleenexes, going through a whole box of Kleenexes? Roots as well. Yeah, that's mine. That That's my... Uh, Okay, I, I don't want to, I'm probably going to misuse this, this white guilt thing, mm-hmm. but like literally white guilt, like holy fuck kind of white guilt, like Jesus Christ, these people, um, that's, that, that's what got me, was roots, but, um, anyways, what's your book, Curtis? The Bible? No. Nah. What you were saying? It wouldn't be, I've read that oh. three times. Um... I don't know. I would probably want something that was fiction that would just completely take me, you know, like what, what, what Ray was going through. He's like, Hey, I can read these books and not only read these books, but he was just like, I can lay down this and escape with his imagination. I'd want something that would do that. That would just completely take me away. And I'm trying to think of a book. I mean, the only one that's, you know, coming up from recent was I really fucking enjoyed ready player one. That was That's an a good ex- book. excellent fucking book. And I was not so great movie. Eh. And it's like I think I tweeted or, or 
Instagrammed or something like right after we got done watching in the theater. I was like, you know what? As a standalone movie, Ready Player One as a movie was good, but it would have been way, way better as a five season run on like Netflix or HBO yes. to really dive into the the depths of that book. That book sent me to a whole nother fucking place, man. That was it just completely forget about the whole world that you're in. So I'd want something like that. I can't think of anything. I mean, the books that you and I have read, you know, the, the Terry Goodkind books, those, of course, would, would I mean, because they, they don't ever end. They've been writing them things for 25 years, so there's always a new one coming out. Uh, that's, but, my, that's my nerd series um, that I read over and over and over and over. I mean, I've read them like 100 times. I was going to say, every time a new book comes out, you go back and read the whole series from front to end. So you've read the first two or three books, what, 10, 12 times? More than that. There's That's, cool. That's definitely cool. Yeah, there's like 14 books now, so <laughs> and I'm I'm listening to them. And and I listened to this one twice. You know, so I do that because I like to get like the the story, get it just get it in my brain and then I like to go back and and pick apart things and sometimes you notice things that you didn't notice the first time around. So, and I'll probably do that with this one too. I'll probably Yeah, I'll definitely it. listen to this one more Read than once. In quotes. Yeah. Um my book would be Fahrenheit 451. Really? Yes. That'd be the first book on your list. Yes. Never read it. Really? I've heard of the book. I haven't read it. That's surprising. Um, I don't know. I, I, there were several books that, that um, okay, I took a college course, and it was uh, one of the required ones. I can't even think of what it's called now, but it's like American literature. We'll just mm-hmm. go with that. We'll say that's what it was. And this lady that was teaching the class, she wasn't, excuse me she wasn't like okay here's your book now let's dissect the book she was more or less here's your book read it and then do whatever the hell you want all right that's my kind of teacher right i mean that i I prefer that kind of teacher when talking about books and so she gave us a list um and i think it had five books on it the first time well i ended up reading all five books You know, Confederacy of Dunces, Pride and Prejudice, you know, some of the just uh, duh books, right, that almost all colleges tell you to read. Well, Fahrenheit 451 was the last one that I read. And I just, for whatever reason, it just, the story itself tripped my trigger, Mm -hmm. you know. So that would be the one that I would take. Because it's, okay, so... Just to give everybody an overview real quick. So, like, books are outlawed in America, right? And firemen are the ones that anytime they find the books or a book, they burn it, right? And Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which paper burns, okay? So, to me, it was interesting. Oh, shit, you're giving me the synopsis of the book. I thought you were taking me into something like a hypothetical. Like, if all the books were gone and only firemen could hand them out, (laughs) what do you think firemen would give you? I thought you were going down another path. Sorry. <laughs> well, but no, but it's like a book about books being outlawed. I got you. I'm, okay. I'm, we're on the same page now. So I think that if I was wanting to escape from everything, that that would be a good way to escape would be by reading a book about, about books. books being outlawed. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very meta. Yeah. So anyways. Anything else, Devin, that you want to bring up from that that made me want to pick our brains you mentioned it earlier 
him is I found him funny. His fantasies about leaving prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I oh, found great. All of a sudden, like he's, he's in a relationship like with every big movie star that's a female at the time. He's like, I had, yeah, that's had what, to that's leave Selma. About the fact that it went from Halle Berry to like this huge mega star in the 90s. And yeah. then it turned to like Sandra Bullock. Right. Because of the time that went by so long. Yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, that, that ability to just, you know, lose your own sense of self and just travel off into your own thoughts is, I think, probably like death row or prison or, you know, some sort of place where you're forced to not have external stimuli is probably one of the only places you can do that now. I mean, let's just like get really good at meditating or some shit. But, I mean, the, the day and age that we live in now, it's so difficult to... Unplug. Yeah. And yeah. even me, like I said, there's times where I will I will shut the radio off and all that kind of stuff and just get lost in my own thoughts. But even still, I get notifications on my phone, and I, I do have to pay attention to the road, and somebody's cutting me off, and this, that, and a third. And, you know, you, you got to pay attention to all that. I, I don't know that it wouldn't be a bad plan for adults to have fucking, like, nap time. Yes. You know, just don't take naps. Just a place to go sit and be quiet for 30, 45 minutes a day. It's probably not a real bad plan. I think, don't, doesn't the Google offices do that? Yeah. They got like bean bags. They got sleeping rooms. They got all this kind of shit that you can just kind of go and do whatever the fuck you want to do, which, you know, as far as a work environment goes, I don't know that I dig on that too much. I'm way too prone to go down a fucking rabbit trail or, or squirrel off. You know, I, I got to have a little bit of fucking structure, you know, in my work environment to kind of help keep me focused. But I mean, if it works, it works. You know, it is cool that other that companies are coming around and going, you know what? People weren't designed to sit in fucking cubicles for goddamn nine hours in a row, you know, and do the same thing over and over and over. It's like the movie Office Space. You know, that dude is finally fucking breaking. Mm. You know, that that was a... To me, that's that's <laughs> that's <working>. reality. <laughs> you know, that dude's just all of a sudden just... I don't give a fuck anymore. So, yeah, why is this wall here? He just pushes it the fuck down. You know, that... I don't think people can function in those things. So yeah, having a company that that opens up your work environment to understanding that people can still perform whether or not they're sitting on a beanbag or sitting in a six by six cubicle, you probably are going to get more production out of people that are that are more comfortable in their environment. Yeah, yeah. I like the little interludes. That was kind of cool that he he gave those glimpses into kind of what helped him keep his sanity, you know. Um, well, and it gives you a, a, a break. But yeah. Because, I, mean, I mean, that book is fucking heavy. Yeah, it is. You know, so it was smart for him to, to, to slide those in every once in a while for it just to, just to break it up and give you a moment to just, you know, kind of let. Kind of decompress. Yeah. 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 Because if it was just hard hitting over and over and over without without something in there to to, to bring light to it, I mean, Jesus, I don't know how you'd finish that book. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of heavy shit, and there's a lot of stuff rolling through your head making you think. And that's that's one of the things that I enjoyed about it was the fact that there were times where I'd have to pause the book and sit there and go, okay, hang on a minute. Let me let me think about what the fuck just happened and just wrap my head around it and then and then go forward because there's there's so much in it that you wanted to keep listening, but it really is better for you just to, to 
put if you're reading it hardback or, or softback, put the summits down, or if you're if you're listening to it, pause it for a minute, and just give yourself a second to catch up. You know, because there's a lot of so there's so much shit in that just doesn't make sense because it's so blatantly fucking obvious that they're fucking him to death. It's very difficult to just to wrap your head around that shit. You got to give yourself a minute every once in a while. Yes, I agree with that completely. Yeah, well, I and I think they were he was reading the um, or he put in his book the almost like the transcript to the court case trial? well the lie detector tests i was really i was oh, having yeah, a hard yeah. time coming up coming up with that um and i i rewound it several times to go back and listen to the questions again because it was like well i know that he passed this yeah so i kind of zoned out and then it was like wait a minute i need to hear this i need to hear the answers and so i went back and, and listened to it several times because that that to me was interesting with some of the questions that they ask um in the lie detector examination, yeah, whatever it's called. I am so. grateful that lie detector tests are not admissible in court. Yeah, I, yes. I do. I do think that's a good thing because I do think there are people out there that truly, that truly believe in their heart of hearts that they're innocent, even though they actually did do the damn thing. Mm-hmm. But they either feel so justified by doing it that a lie detector test is not going to, it, it ain't going to get it done. You know, it, it's or a, the opposite of that, you know, yeah, they're, they're so fucking nervous. They're, yeah. they're innocent, but I mean, like something that, um, has kind of opened my eyes recently, you know, you, um, you hear a lot of, uh, reports about the interactions between cops and, and black people. Right. And, um, I just sit back and I think about that kind of nervousness. You know, you're not doing anything wrong, but you are in this situation where you're being questioned. Yeah. You know, I I, I can kind of see how that nervousness could come into play. Right. You know, especially when you're thinking about like, you know, um, I, I, I think it was the cop that said that it doesn't matter if you did it or not. Somebody, somebody that looks, I think yeah. it was the cop that said that to him. I could be wrong, and I'll go back and listen again and let everybody know. But I'm thinking that how how would that play into taking a lie detector test? I mean, obviously in his case, because he passed it, it didn't affect him. Yeah. But somebody that is a nervous person by nature or who has anxiety issues, I, I couldn't even begin to imagine how something like that would affect them in a test like that. So, sure. no, I'm I'm glad that they are inadmissible. Right. Yeah. Anyway, okay, that's cool. I enjoyed this. I did too. This is great. We're gonna have to do it again. We have to find another book. I love the show. I want to do this uh, Malcolm X, and I've already found another one. Um, the ballot or the bullet? It's apparently a speech that I I'd, I'd never heard of that Malcolm X did. So yeah, let's make this a regular thing. Let's let's find books, and if you we'll, we'll do the Malcolm X next. That was Delvin's suggestion. We'll read that. And come back and do this again. Yeah, I because I I think I have a skewed perspective. I think a lot of white people have a skewed perspective. I mean, I was sitting here thinking about you know you you go through history class and all that kind of shit, and they they talk about Malcolm X, and you know you it's just part of U.S. history, so you gotta you learn a little bit of it. And then the thing that stands out to me is Ali's story, 
more than Malcolm X. You know, cause they kind of cross, point. they kind of cross paths. You know, if I'm not mistaken, it was Malcolm X that did, that took Cassius Clay and like brought him into the fold, right? Yep. And, and led him to the man that he became. Yeah. See, I I definitely need to do some reading because I didn't know any of that either. Yeah, huh. I, I believe it was, I believe it was Malcolm X that that got in 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 Ollie's head and well, I shouldn't say got in his head, but he got to talking to him and you know was giving him some truth, so to speak. And Ali was like, fuck yeah, you're right. So here we go. Now he, you know, he, he became a Muslim and the rest is history. You know what I mean? One of the greatest, if not the greatest, I, I wouldn't say he's the greatest boxer that ever lived, but he's, he's right. He's, he's right there. He's probably <laughs> the greatest boxer that ever lived. Well, if you add up his accomplishments and his achievements in terms of like civil rights and stuff like that, I'd probably say, yeah, he's greatest. Yeah, I'm just talking about strictly in the ring. In the I ring? Mean, the He's guy probably had, top three. Yeah, I love. I'm impartial to Tyson because I've watched Tyson from the beginning. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but you know, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's a, you, you grew know, my, up with Tyson. Yeah, yeah I literally I did grew too. up watching Tyson. So you know, it's hard to deny Mayweather his chops, right? I mean, dude's thirty and zero, and just hardly yeah. ever gets hit. But I just don't like his fighting style. His fighting style works, <laughs> and he wins. But Christ, all you know, if you you're going to get fifteen or twelve rounds with Mayweather because he ain't finishing nobody and nobody's going to finish him. So you're going to watch his fights all the rounds. Yes. So when you pay $60 for a pay-per-view that he's on, chances are you're going to watch almost every single round that's on the card where Tyson, we got so pissed off more often than not for doing the pay-per-views because you come out in the last 32 fucking seconds and you're like, are you shitting me? Yeah. Paid sixty dollars to watch this dude hit a guy six times, and now it's over. But I mean, you weren't were real mad about it. I mean, you got to see the damn thing happen. But yeah, yeah I, uh, I would I, have a hard time saying that. I don't know. I wouldn't say I'd have a hard. You know, Tyson Mayweather, Ali, you know, George Foreman. <laughs> you know, he he takes a bad rap because he lived long enough. You know, yeah. to yeah. to become the guy that has a grill. You know what I'm saying? So his, his life is. It's like they say, you either. Die the hero or live long enough to become the villain, and George Foreman just won't fucking die. So he just he, his reputation is not what it is. You know, it's like we were talking about before we got started. Post Malone's got a new album out, and this the younger generation is like, I don't know who the fuck this Aussie guy is, but he's fixing to get big. <laughs> you know, so people tend to forget how awesome you know George Foreman and you know Ali and, and their group was, but I don't know. Well, I clearly need to be educated because I didn't know all that about uh, Malcolm X and Cassius Clay. And Malcolm X is a fascinating guy, to say the least. And I think, like, because I, I bought the book for my son. All right. And I tweeted it out earlier today. And a lot of white people were like, that's one of my favorite books. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, they like, yeah, it inspired me so much in story because of everything he went through it. And inspired you like that's awesome. I'm like, if you found that in that book, I am so happy that you found his story inspiring to you as a white person. That yeah. is cool. Well, you know, just my history of Malcolm X starts kind of at his activism, right? Well, that's and what my say. history Yours is probably skewed. Oh, it is absolutely skewed. Yeah, you know, and so that's you know, I mean. You know, I'm I'm an adult now, right? And I have to accept my responsibility in my own education post childhood. Yeah. Right. So, you know, but there's 
the things that I was told was that, like, you had two, right? You had Martin Luther King Jr. and you had Malcolm X, right? And so my upbringing pushed me to want to learn more about Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X was the bad guy. Yeah. You know, they were two totally different people fighting for the same cause. They had two totally different, um, oh, approaches, I guess. And maybe they did. did, But, you know, just thinking about it now as an adult, it's kind of like that that was kind of dumb of me. So I'm I'm excited to do this Malcolm X autobiography. I won't even say it's dumb of you at all because I think it's what history has taught us. Yeah. Well, she comes from a household like her dad you know, volunteered to go to Vietnam. So anybody Ah. that was opposed to Vietnam, that was opposed to the soldiers, that, you know, was a draft dodger and all that kind of shit, if they had any ties to that side of the argument, they were just straight running pieces of shit. But, like, prime example, okay, Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. Fuck that guy. I mean, not. I'm I'm not saying that. That's (laughs) how history looked at him. Right. At that time. And that's how my dad would look at him, not because he talked with Malcolm X, which I didn't know this. This is a new information to me, but he talked to Malcolm X and that's why he became Muslim. My dad taught me that Muhammad Ali became Muslim so that he could avoid going to Vietnam. And there's a lot of people that assume that because of the timing of it. Right. Now, whether or not it actually happened, I don't know. Um, well, I think the only people that probably do are Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali. Right. Right. But to, to for that to be the only perspective yeah. that you're given as a child. Right. I mean, you look at your parents and you go, well, they're not going to fuck me. Right. They're telling me the they truth. Lying. They got my best interests at heart. Yeah. But again, parents are people and people can be fucked up. People are flawed. <laughs> and then if you add to it, which I always hold in accountability, is the fact that it's a, it was a different time. Sure. Yeah. You know, people weren't aware of everything that goes on and how things like, for example, around that time, we probably couldn't have had this conversation. Mm-mm. Us just sitting here talking as friends. And, That's true. And talking about a book that we love. That wasn't a common thing. Definitely not in fucking East Texas or Miami. Yeah. Now, you could have probably had this conversation back then in San Francisco. Yes. You know what I mean? There was very, there was a little bitty pockets around the country where, where that kind of, where, where this kind of activity was accepted. But directly outside of those, like San Francisco is... Super fucking left. I mean, it is batshit crazy yeah. left. And literally across the bay, you go to Oakland, and it's nowhere near it. Now, they're still, yeah. they still lean left, but Oakland's a whole different, you know, ball of wax versus their neighbors just across the bay, you know. So you still had, you had people that live in Oakland who was like, what in the fuck is going on over here? I mean, you got men dating men, women dating women, and you got the blacks and the whites and the Mexicans and everybody's fucking having a good time living their best life over there. You know, it's like that shit's wrong. So when you have just that short separation of two cities, you got even a wider separation when you go across the, you know, get out into fucking Nebraska somewhere and you fuck around, get dead. You start talking like that. Yeah. And there's still places in America where people have never seen a black person before. And I think that's crazy. Yeah, in person for sure. Are you serious? Yeah. I have no doubt in my mind that there's little pockets out in the fucking... I bet you there's places in fucking Massachusetts where they've never seen a fucking black person in real life. Yeah. That's Crazy to I've think said. about that, but it's actually true. Like, there's pockets in America where they have never seen... it. The only time they've seen a black person is on TV. Yeah. Well, 
first part of my life. Okay. All right. I believe it. I was in sixth grade before I ran up on the first black person in real life. Sixth grade. I ran yeah. into two Mexicans before that. I, that was probably about the time, I mean, I'd, you know, like Delvin said, seen him on TV. Um, in fact, the first, like, introduction to racism that I ever saw was a movie. I and it, it. <laughs> What? I said, I believe it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the movie was uh, Mississippi Burning. Okay. <laughs> let's was, let's was, just jump was, into the fucking deep my head end. Too. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say either she saw Mississippi Burning or she saw like Columbo and Huggy Bear or some shit. Hell yeah. <laughs> to Kill a Mockingbird or some bullshit. No, no, no. I've read that book, but no. I've read the book and seen the movie. It's one of my favorite movies. I don't think I've ever seen the movie. Okay. It's the one with um, Matthew McConaughey where he jumps yeah. over the fence or over the, the rail of his porch. Get his ass. That's not To Kill a Mockingbird. No. That's a that? time to kill. Yeah, that's a time to kill. Okay. I had get to his ass, sea bass. Oh, wait, no. 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 You're off on another fucking. <laughs> where are you at now? I don't know. You're fucking Forrest Gump or some shit. Hell, no. No. Um, but yeah, it was uh, Mississippi Burning was the first movie I ever saw that, that even remotely delved into racism and civil rights. Yeah. Oh, now, oh shit. Speaking book. of racism and civil rights, let me ask you a question, Devin. Be my guess. If you and your family we're driving down the road and there's a cotton field on either side for like miles and miles would you even have the remote fucking temptation to pull over and go pull some cotton out of that field if there's no gate there yeah i would i would definitely pull over and go pull some cotton out of the field we'll look okay. at it. it it freaked me out the other day i shouldn't say it freaked me out but where i've been working it took you aback yeah it, it just gave me it gave me pause where I've been working, there's a lot of, in South Texas, there's a lot of cotton fields and rice fields and all that kind of shit. And you can drive for, you know, hours on end and on either side of the highway, it's just nothing but, <clears throat> excuse me, cotton fields. And there's nothing between, that's a little two-lane road, you know, farm to market roads. And there's nothing between the edge of the road and the cotton field but about 10 feet of grass. And I've seen it before, people pull over. You know, they get out of their car and they walk over there and they pull a little cotton out of the thing. I was going down the road the other day, coming home, saw a van pull off the road up ahead of me. You know, they were coming towards me, but I'd seen them way off in the distance. They pulled off doors and stuff open. As I got closer, it was a black family. Got out and walked over there. And, and I don't know why. I don't know if that's some of that deep-rooted fucking, you know, <laughs> Texas shit in me or whatever else. But I was like, holy shit, what the fuck's going on over here? Right? I just, I just assumed that that would be the last thing black folks would want to do. You know what I mean? I would do because I never seen cotton before. I never seen cotton like in a field before. So it's like, trippy it's as fuck, dude. The little the little cotton bells that are in it they look like cotton balls, like what you get in a bag. Like you can See, grab I, it and start I, pulling I, it out, and it just comes out in a big long. And that could be very well what it is. You know, people just don't. I mean, I grew up around that shit. I mean, I I never really had to pick cotton, but my grandparents did. My grandparents were sharecroppers, and they they picked cottons on halves. You know, so I, I've been exposed to that. A lot, but it, it just, it took me back for a second. I was like, man, that just, and I, and as I drove away, I was like, why do I fucking think that way? That, that should never cross my mind. What should have crossed my mind was like, oh shit, here's a family, regardless of fucking race, color, creed, that's getting out to experience something. You know what I mean? It should have gave me pause for. It, it is weird to see, like, if, if you're driving by and you see mm -hmm. like a family, a black family picking, kind of like, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> 
it's 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 a it's kind of a little little jarring. It's like if you drive by a Popeye, you just see it full of black people. Like, what the fuck is going on? You really <laughs> guys are following that stereotype, aren't you? Right. I mean, I don't hate. That's one of the things I think is funny is when I was a little kid, you know, growing up. I, I grew up in a well, like I said, kindergarten to fifth grade. The school that I went to was a very very small school, like 10, 12 people in a, in a whole in a whole grade. Right, like a graduating class would be 12, 13 people, or or less in some cases. I think one year they had a graduating class of three, but it was a small little community, and it was just nothing but white folks, you know. And when I was in fourth grade, I think two little Mexican kids started coming to class, and I didn't think anything of it because racism really wasn't preached in my home, but my grandfather had a different perspective on it, and I can get into that, but... um. I was never, my house was never really taught to hate anybody, right? Like I said, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. It was all, you know, be good to your fellow man and all that kind of shit. So these little Mexican kid come up and we go to recess and they brought a soccer ball. And we're, and I never even, I didn't even ever knew what soccer was. I never seen it. And they were out there doing all these tricks and shit with this soccer ball. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm like, come over here and learn. Let me, let me see what this is about. And all the other kids started like pulling me away. It's like, no, we don't, we don't fucking deal with them. We don't talk with them. And I'm like, fucking why? Like, because they're Mexican. I'm like, okay, but they got this cool-ass ball that I've never seen. You know, and then as I got a little bit older, I was like, holy shit, that whole area was just fucking filled with racism. You know, that that's that's the that's kind crazy. of place where that shit bred. You know, and obviously these other kids' households were teaching them, no, they're different. You don't fuck with them. They're, you know, they do their own thing. We do our own thing. So I don't know why that shit settled in me to a, to, I don't know why, I don't know how I got to a fucking place where seeing a black family would pull over and, you know, wanting to experience what it's like to fucking get caught in the raw would have gave me pause. And it, it just had my head spun up. And I know it just years and years and years of living in majority white and the shit that we went through in high school and, you know, all that kind of shit. It just, I felt bad for, for thinking that way. And it's the first time I've ever really felt bad about a natural reaction of mine. Usually my natural reactions, I just fucking go with them, you know. But that one, it gave me pause to, to a point to where I've thought about it for, I mean, I've talked to our friends and now you about it. So it's it just sticks with me that it's like, fuck, man, you know, you can be better than that. But, you know, I don't blame you for that because it wasn't malintentioned. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't like you were like, oh, they're out there picking cotton. No, it's yeah. like holy crap! It was like jarring to see. So, it's not like you were like mocking or anything like that. It was just a natural reaction to something that you're not used to seeing. Right. And then what I was getting at a minute ago was, you know, the as I moved out of that little neighborhood and we moved into a a, a much bigger school where ever there was a lot of mixed races in that school. And it that's why I said when I went to sixth grade it was the first time I ever had to really interact with black folks. I mean, I would see every fucking once in a while you would see a Mexican and, and maybe a black lady or something at like the grocery store, but I never had to like interact with them. And sixth grade was the first time that I had to sit in a classroom and be on group teams and, and all this kind of shit with folks that weren't white, you know, so it was a little bit shocking, but we got to, you know, there were some racist ass motherfuckers there too. And they would, you know, you start hearing the stereotypes. Well, black folks like watermelon and they like collard greens and, you know, fucking this, that, and the third. I'm like, dude, that's the shit that I eat. You know what I mean? Cause just because I grew up country as fuck, you know. And that's why I say, you, when you said this, I'm going to go a whole bunch of black folks at, at Popeye's. I'm like, yeah, that's where I'm going to go because that's probably the best fucking chicken in town. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? People like, I have always liked Popeyes. Yeah. You know, so, these little hole in the walls. It's like if you see a shit ton of Mexicans gathered up around a taco stand, go to that fucking taco stand. And it's pretty good. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's where the good food's like, at. I, I can take you guys some soul food restaurants down here that will knock your socks off. You're like, <laughs> holy crap. It's here? But they have some incredible food. Yeah. I love fucking soul food, man. That's what I grew up on. I mean, you know, nowadays, I mean, Terry and I, I mean, hell, we, if we had to really break it down, we'd probably eat, what, 70% Mexican food? Yes. And then 20% pizza. I love tacos. <laughs> yeah. I could eat tacos three times a day. Maybe. The right tacos. That's what I was going to say. I can eat breakfast tacos, and then I can have regular tacos, and then I can have breakfast tacos. And don't even get again. me started on tamales. Yeah. That's good food, man. That I, I miss. I miss good soul food. I miss good greens and mashed potatoes and gravy and fried Mm-mm. chicken and... You know, my I have a hard time with it because I grew up eating that shit from my mom and my grandmother, and it's like, ain't nobody going to cook it that fucking good. Nope. You know, Especially me. <laughs> I don't even come close. I got, I got an interesting story to tell you that reminds me of what you were talking about earlier. I was driving with my family. This is a few, a few months back. I want to say three or four months back. And we saw a, like, I don't even know how you describe it other than, like, a a redneck petting zoo. What the fuck? <laughs> and it was weird because like they had like a strawberry patch out there. That it's like it was like somebody like I guess they found like a little plot of land that they owned, and they had like cows on it, and, and like like cows. They clearly like had cows. I guess they were part of their family. A goat. Yeah. And like like old strawberries, like a, it was like a strawberry patch, but you could tell they weren't keeping it up. Okay. Oh man. They were trying to make money off of it. <clears throat> so we we saw it. We, get, we got it. Oh, let's go check this out. Let's go check out the go for my kids. Like let's go feed the cows and stuff. Yeah. And we got out, and everybody stopped. It's it a fucking. <laughs> yes, fucking it was exactly <laughs> that because we were in a. Really far down, so I want to say Homestead. Okay. And you see this black guy with these two, one black, well, both of the kids are part black, part Latino, just hop out of the car and feeding these cows and stuff. <laughs> and they're just staring at us like, like they just see the ghost. And I'm yeah. Like, I'm like, it's okay, kids. And then, then they had like this old, it was so weird, but it was so fun. The kids had like a ball because they had like, when I say like a redneck, like it was weird because they had like a cow that they that you could ride around on. Oh my all right. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's like those all over the place out here. I mean, you know, there's a couple up there's one up the road here, it's called Yesterland Farm, where they have like a hay maze and their little petting area where you know, they got goats and chickens and yes. ducks and all that kind of shit. Okay. I mean, those are all over the place like out here. Five miles up the road is I think it's Callie's Corner. Yeah. Like pumpkin time this time of year, fall coming yeah. well coming into fall. Well, shit, we're four months coming away into from second fall. summer for Texas, but yeah, um, it's kind of like that. You know, she's got a little pumpkin patch out there, and you can go pick out pumpkins to buy. But they have like a little maze that you go through, and all kinds of shit. So, I mean, that's pretty common here, but yeah, maybe not with cows riding cows. I don't know that I'd well, want to. See, ride I grew a cow. up in, in Hopkins County. You know, right around the, the Silver Springs area, and Hopkins County was the number one 
dairy-producing county in Texas. I mean, that's all Hopkins County is, is fucking dairy farms. I like milk. So you can't drive through Hopkins County without either side of the fucking... I mean, unless you're on Interstate 20 going through town, or 30 going through town, if you're on any kind of country road, there's just farms all over the fucking place. Mm-hmm. Cows and shit everywhere. You know, horses and everything else. And where we grew, where I grew up out in the country was... I mean, you could literally ride a bike for three minutes and be at a, an actual fucking farm. You know, where these people, that's where they made their living. They sold milk to dairy producers and they raised chickens and sold chickens to people and their eggs and, and the whole nine yards. I mean, it was an actual damn farm. So it wasn't that that kind of shit. When they when when I see these little Yesterland farms and Cali's Acres and all this kind of shit, I'm like, look, man, I, I did all that as a kid. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm not, I, I don't. I, I know that. I know that life. I don't need to go experience that. I'm a city girl, so I'm all about stopping and looking at the cows, and I want to go through the drive through safari, and Curtis is like, not in my truck. Fuck no, not in my <laughs> truck. Have some goddamn buffalo or some shit come up there and slobber all inside my cab. Are you fucking crazy? Ready. <laughs> Let's go get a rental car, and we'll go through there. Okay. Just get the insurance first. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to get you out to East Texas, man, one of these days. I've been to okay. Miami several times. I haven't. Yeah, you haven't been to the East Coast I have not. All. I have not been past Mississippi. That's right. I went. We went to Jackson. Was it Jacksonville? One time. And, and no kidding, we got there and turned right around and came back. So I was in Jacksonville, Mississippi. Is it Jacksonville? No, just Jackson. Oh, it's just Jackson. Mm-hmm. Hey. We're right on the river. Jackson. Um, <laughs> whoops. I don't know geography. Anyways, Jackson, like, I was there for 30 minutes. Yep. And that is the furthest east I have ever been. Yeah. So, I'm going to Florida. Florida. Yes. I want to go to Florida. Just Miami. avoid Florida, man, and you'll be fine. Miami's straight running crazy. Uh-oh. That town will never quit. Yeah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I mean, it like, for real. I mean, there's any, any, you can attest this, I'm sure. But well, I would hope he Lives in you know, they talk about New York being the city that never sleeps. It's like, well, y'all motherfuckers never been to Miami because Miami doesn't fucking stop. Really? Yeah. No. That is true. It's a full-time party town. I'm ready. Yeah. A lot of areas of it. A lot of culture down here. That's what I like about Miami. Like, you can um, go down Calle Yocho and eat all kind of Spanish and Caribbean food. It's fantastic. And there's just so many areas that you can go to and see completely different experiences that you would expect to see block to block really block to block yeah okay i'm ready yeah let's go we'll have to make a we'll have to make a plan soon matter of fact we got a week of vacation that we got to do something with here soon yeah so may go that way we'll see delvin yep i'm definitely down with that okay so we're going to do the uh autobiography of malcolm x in what a few weeks well, I need to finish. So my series has started new new books. Yeah. So I want to at least finish the book that I'm on now. I'm on chapter 55 of 72. Oh, shit. You'll have that done by the end of next week. No, I won't. It'll probably be two <laughs> weeks. All right. And then I need to get through at least one time through the autobiography of Malcolm X. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll make a plan. It'll be what it'll be. It'll pop up. Yeah. We'll give people a heads up. That it's coming out, so that'd be cool. Yes, we can, we can make a make a make a thing of this. Are you ready, Delvin? I'm ready. All right, he stays ready. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, Delvin, we appreciate you coming. On. Hey, you want to give everybody the the quick rundown where they can find you? Yes. 
Just follow me on Twitter at Devil underscore Cox. And if you get a chance, listen to the Devil Cox Experience. The episode, any episode with the building in the is excellent. So <laughs> make sure you check those out first. Those are my extended family. So I yeah, love you very to... much. I love Terry. I love Curtis. They're my people. So right on. Check, yes. check out check out their podcast and check out my podcast. All right. We appreciate it, man. No problem, brother.